HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by greatbrewers.com, a social media marketing platform dedicated to promoting the world's great brewers and the beers they create. For more information, visit greatbrewers.com. Hi, this is Celia Kutcher, host of Animal Instinct, and you are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hey, 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 welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jimmy Carboni from Jimmy's Number 43 and the Good Beer Seal. This is October 31st, 2014. We're doing a special Cider Week show on premise at Jimmy's Number 43. I have some special guests. We've got Henry Chevalier Guild of Aspball in England, Alex Forbes from Artisanal Imports, Anthony Bellevue Flores uh, from Rowan Imports, who's just brought in some Irish craft ciders this week, and Eric West, our special guest cider guide, uh, our favorite uh, cider blogger and podcaster also. So here's our show. Welcome to the show, everybody. Thanks Cheers. so much. Thanks to our sponsor, GreatBrews.com. Well, thanks for having us, Jimmy. So yesterday we sat down with Henry. We did a, l- a little short piece, uh, told some of the stories of uh, English cider and Aspel, and uh, we're, we're going to cover more of that. But but Henry, just, just, just give us a quick briefing. Tell us a little bit about your family's estate yeah. and, uh, you know, your role in English cider because it seems like you're the guy that knows more about English cider than anybody else. Uh, that's kind of you to say. I'm, I suspect there are people out there who know a bit, quite a little bit more than me. I mean, my family, in the in the grand scheme of English cider and cider in general, yes, we've been making cider in the same place for 286 years, but cider historically goes back, certainly in England, to the Norman times and beyond, so about 1066. Uh, but actually, the Romans were the first to bring cultivated apples to, to, to English shores um, shortly after 55 BC. And it was actually a method that the Roman Empire used to incentivize legionnaires when they left the army, if they were stationed in England, to stay in the empire uh, and be Romans, be good Roman citizens. They gave them apple trees to plant so that there was an incentive for them to stay and cultivate and get a crop off of them. Um, more recently, when the Normans came over, they brought a great cider-making heritage uh, that's well-established and well-known. Uh, and it was the monks planted the trees up, they had orchards, and through medieval times they really propagated uh, those trees. Lots of interesting varieties, some of which still even exist today. So if you ever find a costard or a permane, you know that that was something that was brought over the Normans. 
and there's a couple of those varieties that you can still get commercially in the UK. My family uh, came to Suffolk, which is in the east coast of England, in 1702 uh, and bought an estate there. And the east coast of England is not well known for apple growing, or it wasn't well known for apple growing, uh, and it wasn't well known for cider making. Much of that was happening in the West Country, mainly because the land in the east is very flat and it's very fertile and it's great for growing annual crops. Uh, and if you want to grow trees, you have to put something in the ground. And certainly back in those days, you had a probably five to seven year period before you got a crop, uh, and you probably had a 10 to 15 year period before you got your money back. So it, it, it appeared to be utter lunacy to, to plant trees over on the east side of, the, uh, of England, whereas down in the west country, you had a lot more undulating land. I wouldn't call it bad land, but it was better for growing uh, long-term root crops than for, for growing annual crops. And that's really why cider making and apple growing became so prevalent in the West Country. Uh, we make a style of cider on the East Coast which is much more based on cookers and eaters. So these light, sweet and acid uh, apples. There's a lot of crab apples available on the East Coast of England uh, when my family arrived. Uh, Clement would have brought over his... Uh, that's my great-great-great-great-great-grandfather... He brought over apples from Normandy and from Jersey. And Jersey at that time was, was better known for making cider than, than a lot of places in Normandy. Planted his trees and he started straight away blending his bittersweet varieties with a lot of the sour varieties that were available on the East Coast, which has really come to define our style of cider. And we've been consistent because English cider, much the same as it was in America, was the, was the prevalent and dominant volumetric alcoholic drink. So up until the late 1700s, 60% of cider of, of alcohol that was consumed was, was cider. Uh, it fell on quite hard times for various reasons, stretching the product, adverse taxes from various prime ministers. Uh, and the thing that happens if an industry is, has a hard time, cider industry has, has a hard time, is that people pull the, 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 the raw material out, they pull the trees out. And that happened in the 1760s and 1770s in the UK. And it happened in the US in, in 1929, 1930, when Prohibition came in. And of course, when the taxes were repealed, when Prohibition was repealed, there were not so many apples uh, available anymore. So people kind of forgot the heritage that they had. And, and certainly in the UK, we went from being 60% of all, U, all alcohol consumed in the UK down to you know, it's less than 9% at the moment. So... Um, it's a long way to go to get back to those heady days. Well, it's, it's a good background. I'm going to talk to you a lot more on the show tonight. Um, you know, Anthony, with Rowan Imports, you just brought something in. You brought Irish craft ciders in just this week to the USA for the first time. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about that. So we're going to try to get a sense of everyone's background here. Um, well, I guess we actually started first with Spanish cider. That was our, our initial uh, uh, intro into cider there, and I don't have nearly the same background as cider at all. Uh, so I've been, really just been learning as I, I go about this. Uh, we found this uh, Cider Ireland on Twitter, which is a small little group of craft cider makers who are really trying to bring back Irish cider tradition to Ireland. They used to be a massive cider producer there, uh, and there were still there were orchards all over the country. Uh, and I haven't really spent as much time as I would like to over there, really just going through and visiting these three producers, uh, Longville Cider House, Craigie's, and Dan Keeley's, uh, and just kind of looking at the way that they can grow their apples. They are in a different situation than the United States, where here, just like you were saying, uh, we really have a lack of cider fruit, whereas in Ireland, they had tons of cider fruit. 
So they weren't in the situation, they were just all selling it to Ballmer's. So these are all former growers that were selling it to the largest uh, cider producer. And now they're trying to bring it back, showing what their each individual lands produce, uh, what kind of varieties they can really do, and just making their own little cider themselves. So these are all just very small farmhouse cideries, and I'm really looking forward to working with them. That's, that reminds me of going to wine. What happened in like the southwest of France, you know, in the in the eighties, seventies, eighties, where they had been same way grape growers providing grapes to large negotiants, and they started doing their own estate. Yeah, bottled, right. That's what all of these producers a couple generations back were making their own cider, and apparently they started selling everything to Bulmers, and uh, Bulmers bought more and more of their crop. And then eventually they were buying all of their crop, and out of, and out of the kindness of their heart, uh, Balmers offered to buy all of their machinery, just because they weren't using it anymore, and just trashed it. So they lost the capacity to do it. So now this, this group, they're really working together as a collective. They can't even afford their own bottling lines right now, so they, they all ship their tanks to one central location so they can do it. Now, it's really amazing to see the, the camaraderie that they're really trying to pull this tradition back together right now. So it's going to be awesome to follow, and it's it's amazing to see. I've got this book, uh, Slancha, which is the the story of, of craft beer and cider in Ireland, and it's great going through there, just seeing all these different. Who are the authors? Anthony. Uh, this is three o'clock on a Friday. Last night <laughs> we were at Astor Center, Applepalooza, and it's New York City, so we're yeah. all shaking off that. They call it cider drunk. That's what, yeah, that's yeah. what they call it, right? Well, we're just getting warmed up. Yes. Yeah. This book got sent from Ireland and then returned back to Ireland because it was the wrong address. So I was supposed to have this a month and a half ago, and it arrived yesterday. Uh, but it's by Carolyn Hennessy and Kristen Jensen. Are you familiar with either? I'm not, actually. I'm ashamed yeah. to say. Goodness well, I'll say, since, since we're at a cider show, we should talk about other things, too, including what is cider drunk. But first, Eric West, uh, at CiderGuy, CiderGuy.com. You, you are a, a devoted cider writer. We first met because you transcribed. We did an interview with Tom Oliver, one of our other favorite U.K. cider makers, and you transcribed it, which no one's ever done from our show. So that alone wins you points. But <laughs> yeah, now so, you've gone on and you're doing your own podcast, too. So Yeah, well, I've always, you know, I've been a longtime listener of this show, and it's awesome to actually be a guest now. So uh, thanks for being me and Jimmy. Um, I... I am a craft beer geek. That's kind of where I got my start. Um, my wife and I moved to Virginia in 2007. And I met Diane Flynn of Foggy Ridge Ciders, who I believe her ciders are available here in New York City. So I got a very good education about what the cider world was. And over time, I tried to learn more and more about cider. And there just wasn't a lot of books. There wasn't a lot of information out there. So I had to get in my car and go out and meet the people who were making it. So um, over the past three years, roughly, I've gone on a number of different road trips, got to be comfortable talking about cider, learning about cider, meeting the people who make cider and who are the experts in cider. And I've, I guess I've tried to become one myself, you know, starting my own podcast and I blog online and um, there aren't that many cider experts right now. So I felt that, you know, I was inspired by people like Michael Jackson and Garrett Oliver and some of those people in the beer world. And I kind of wanted to do the same thing for, for cider to turn people on to cider. So. Right, and there's a really good Virginia scene, right? There is a good scene in Virginia, yeah. There's a, there's actually a Cider Week in Virginia. It's the full week before Thanksgiving, so it's one of the last kind of Cider Weeks on the calendar each year. But there's about, about a dozen producers now in Virginia who have kind of bonded together, and they hold events throughout the, the state. So there's there's a very thriving scene and a very historically linked 
seen there. There's a lot of apples historically grown in the Shenandoah Valley, and so it's one of those areas that had a little bit of tradition, and it's, it's lost there, but it got a little less lost in Virginia than it was in some other places. So there's still some links there to kind of the historical cider making. So. This is fun. So much of Cider Week in New York was originally just about the New York and, and Northeast, you know, small you know, apple growers, cider makers. And we really wanted to make a point. And today we're also doing a tasting more of the wide world of cider because there's so many great traditions, France, England, Spain, Ireland now we're learning, you know, as well as America. So we're hoping that even our American friends can, can learn, learn from Europe. So what, what, let's talk about drinking terms. What is cider drunk? I've heard people say that. It's a little different than drinking liquor. It's different than a beer a beer buzz. What is cider drunk? Alex, because you're, you're, you're at the drinking. You're definitely a consumer of beverages with me. You can trust me. I learn by experience on this one. It's cider drunk, and I do drink a lot like of a beer as dummy. well. You're a test dummy. Yeah, exactly. Same as me. I'm a guinea pig. That's why I five. All right. That's why we're buddies. Uh, cider drunk is different than other drunks in terms of a whiskey or maybe a craft beer. It It's a bright drunk. It gives you a fresh, kind of zesty, uplifting feel. Um, it, whereas some kind, sometimes you can be, you can feel heavier or weighted down, maybe slower. This kind of makes you smarter and invincible and happier. Well, last Friday we, we had a kickoff here. We, we were tasting, we had Reverend Nats here. We were tasting a lot of Kingston Blacks. And uh, I went to bed at 12 o'clock on a Friday. I woke up fully awake at 3 in the morning as if, as if I had slept soundly. Yeah. So that's like kind of, that's Cider Drunk too, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, Henry, we're drinking right now, we're drinking the Aspel uh, Imperial. Is Imperial. That's the Imperial. That is, a, um, that is a recipe. It's based on a recipe that my great-grandfather won a silver medal at the 1921 Imperial Fruit Show. And... So, sugars added to cider these days get quite a bad rap because actually if you want to stretch cider and you want to make it cheap on the whole mainstream ciders are determined a lot by global apple concentrate prices and the cost of sugar syrup and sugar syrup has never been as cheap as it is now but my family's actually always um, added sugar to its fermentations and this is back in the day late 1600s, early 1700s when before India Pale Ale became the drink of the empire uh, it was English cider, and it was English cider spelt with a Y. And it was spelt with a Y because it would have sugar added to it to boost the alcohol to help it survive the journey through the tropics around to India. Mm. So it was a, it's a long-established um, uh, way of making cider. And you've got to remember, back in those days, you know, sugar was actually really, really expensive. You didn't put sugar in something unless you wanted to charge a lot of money for it. Um, so this is a, a, an homage to that style. Uh, and we add, because you get about 65 to 7% alcohol out of an apple if you just take the fresh juice and ferment it. This is 8.2% and we get the increase in alcohol by adding muscovado sugar which is a slight variation on, on what JB, my great-grandfather, was using using barley crystals mainly. And we like the idea of getting something a little bit more richness and, and, and unctuousness that muscovado sugar brings. Fermented out to 8.2% and then it's uh, we do a dosage, all of our ciders have a dosage with apple juice. This has apple juice and a little bit of muscovado sugar uh, and it's got a high tannic, a higher tannic proportion of bittersweets in it than most of our other sides, about forty percent bittersweet. Uh, and after a while, this is quite young. This this one that we're drinking, um, it's about three months old. Once you get past three months, the tannin in the muscovado sugar starts to 
combine and reveal all sorts of very interesting flavours. I opened up a 2010 vintage the other day, smelled of orange peel, and, and we didn't put orange peel in it, so um, that's something that's developed in the bottle. So it's a really interesting product for us because we don't tend to mature many of our ciders. Uh, they're quite new world in their style. Is there is, you know, after a couple of weeks in a the bottle, they're, they're good to drink, good to go. This one really benefits from a bit of aging and uh, goes great as well with, you know, uh, very you know, red meats, um, you know, duck and hoisin sauce. That's a great, great, great food accompaniment for this cider. Have you done a lot of experiments with aging the ciders? I'm very curious to see. This one, this is a uh, 2012 right, right. here, yeah. uh, and they just released it. Right. So that was their, their idea for doing yeah. it. Um, but just what? It depends, it depends on the apple that you actually made the cider from. Yeah. So if you make it from a bittersweet, and the bittersweet is the red grape to a cider maker. You know, that's the one that's got all these wonderful tannin in the skin. And that's the one that you know, we always work on the basis that you, you never use a cider that's made from bittersweet until it's at least four months old. Okay. But that's really just, you know, it's not even a teenager by that stage. Yeah. It's, you know, if you leave it longer, if you can leave it a year, leave it longer than that, it gets even better. So other varieties, if you use cooks and eaters, you, know, you get acid from eaters and you get sweetness and a lot of beautiful apple aroma from, from some of the eating apple mm-hmm. varieties. But the truth is we found is that once they finish fermenting, that's about as good as they're going to get. Uh, what tends to happen is that the, the, the um, carbon-hydrogen chains that form the, the flavour and the aroma tend mm. to, to drift away after a period of time. So I'd be really well, interested let's, let's try this, because yeah, this is actually mostly it. made from Katie's. From Katie? Yeah. You see, that is not an apple that I would ordinarily I associate with. I, I know, much. exactly. But then, of course, there's other things that you can do. Is, you know, I mean, I was drinking a cider earlier in the week from some guys from Cider Creek mm-hmm. uh, in New York uh, by Fingerly, uh, uh, Finger Lakes. Finger Lakes, yeah. Uh, and his farmhouse style, he makes it with champagne yeast. The difference he's done is that he's actually he's made it with varieties that um, I wouldn't mature, but he left it on the yeast. So, so actually, the yeast is the yeast. Yeah, the, the yeah. yeast. What, what, what's like. this, Anthony? Uh, this is the Dalliance by Craigie's. That's great. Well, this, is, this has been a great little introduction. We'll take a short break. We'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. So you like good beer. Whether you're a craft beer pro or just had your first sip of an IPA, GreatBrewers.com is your number one beer resource on the internet. GreatBrewers.com bridges the gap between the world's great brewers and the consumers who enjoy their products. With so much information and misinformation out there, GreatBrewers.com focuses on education and leaves no stone unturned. Take the Great Beer Test on their website and browse through an extensive product catalog. Download their mobile beer cloud app which includes a GPS beer finder, a beer sommelier, and descriptions for over 5,000 different brews. What are you waiting for? Back up that passion for craft beer with some solid information and education. Visit greatbrewers.com today. Hey, hey, hey. Welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. We're doing a special Cider Week show at Jimmy's Number 43. We've got some great guests here. And right now we're tasting some of the first Irish craft ciders that, that have come uh, come to America. And it's uh, Anthony uh, who's representing them. We've got Henry from Aspel and, and, and Eric from uh, Cider Guide. So this is a pretty damn good cider panel uh, tasting some new ciders in America. And we went outside of just the northeast of New York State. We've got uh, the English cider, Aspel, and we're tasting Irish ciders today. So, so Anthony and Henry, uh, t- you're talking about this cider that we're drinking, so take it away. 
Well, we were talking about aging capacity yeah. for ciders and see what they do and then what kind of varietals would age. And so this cider is primarily made from dessert fruits. But like we were talking about earlier, the interesting case in the United States, um, and is it the same in the UK? It's harder to get the cider fruit, or you're pretty well. Uh, no, I mean we. I think we must grow more cider fruit in the. In, in fact, about forty percent of okay. the apple overall apple harvest in the UK is bittersweet. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. And so we're spoiled. Yeah, very. <laughs> that's that's awesome. Uh, in the United States, it's really hard to get uh, cider fruit for most people. That's why you see a lot of there's a lot of new producers in the states, but they're really struggling. Obviously, Steve Wood is is the primary uh, purveyor of cider fruit in the United States. So sometimes I joke that the best West Coast cider you have is grown in Lebanon, New Hampshire. Uh, <laughs> it's a really interesting point, though, because I, I mean, I have to say that some of the, the most interesting and exciting ciders that I've drunk in the last 18 months have all come out of America. And I've been in places where people have found uh, heirloom varieties. And I talked to some of the producers, and they said, well, of course, what we really need is bittersweet because we need mm-hmm. to give it structure. Now, I would argue that, okay, well, you put bittersweet in, then you're beginning to lean towards an English or a French style or a Spanish style. Mm-hmm. What's the American style? Because there never was bittersweet here. Right. And if you look at, say, you know, Hidden Star from Slybra, which is one of my standout favorite American craft ciders, that hasn't got bittersweet in it. Yeah. But it's an epically good cider. It's beautifully made. It's well-balanced. It's got depth. It's got breadth. It's got everything you want in a cider, yet it has no bittersweet in it. And that's always the challenge that I put back to a lot of craft cider makers in the U.S., is to say, look, what is the American style? Because you had, you know, the same in the U.S. as in the U.K. At one point, cider was the drink mm-hmm. in the States. Yeah, I, I, think the, I think the direction that I'd like to see American cider makers go in is to reestablish some of those heirloom varieties like Bald One and Northern Spy mm-hmm. yeah. and some of those varieties that we haven't quite lost or we've been able to rediscover. And yeah. I think, to me... That is the direction that I'd like to see America go because that can be our calling card. That can be, you know, here's our history. A lot of we're rich we're history to yeah. remember. Yeah. And I mean, I, I love I love tannic bittersweet ciders. I mean, I, they're some of my favorite U.S. cider makers make cider in that style. But I don't think that necessarily will be America's sort of calling card going going forward. I 100% agree. And, and you're right. The people that yeah. do make um, bittersweet ciders do it incredibly well and actually put some... British cider makers to shame the truth. Much the yeah. same as the craft beer scenes for a lot of the brewers in the UK to right, shame right. Well, on, on that note, one thing. So, talking about, you know, you're saying that we have, there's trees, traditional apple trees in different forests or woods in America. Mm-hmm. I know that uh, Redbird has one, uh, one cider called uh, Wild Pippin. And, uh, they actually do go out and gather apples from the countryside. And I know that your friend Andy Aaron Burr, Andy yeah. Brennan, has done the same. Uh, is that we do, do we just have to go out into the woods and find all these great cider apples? I and mean, does America have that, and we're not even well, aware of it? Andy's philosophy is much more um, a nurture over nature. So he really tries to find. He does the, the wild foraging, a lot of the pippins, uh, so or seedling trees. So these are apples. They're either old heirloom varieties which have just been lost. You know, they're two hundred year old trees. Or they're going to be the seedling trees, which have come, and since they've crossbred with each other, you're getting varieties that no one has ever seen before. Uh, but again, his philosophy is more about seeing what that land produces. So he's the only producer that I know of in the United States who's really, really focusing on the concept of terroir. And you see that in the homestead, which we, we tried last night. Uh, he does the Shawanagunk, the Neversink, and the Mamakadding, which are all three distinct geographical areas right around their home. And you try them next to each other, and he's using 
a field blend, for lack of a better word. He's just hunting around in those that small little microclimate, and the variance you're getting is amazing. And he firmly believes it is from the geographical area. So I think that could be another thing that we could see in the United States. I don't know if you see it in the UK. Do people focus on well, that? If people don't, and I think they should, because um, you know Davenet is a very, very well. Uh, it's probably the largest varietal bittersweet that you get in the UK. Mm-hmm. And if you drink a, a cider that's made in Somerset from Davenet versus a cider that's made in Hereford that's made from Davenet, and they're what 120 miles apart. Actually, the climate is so different, the land is so different, that they are completely different ciders. And this goes back a long time. There's a guy called John Beale, um, who was one of the first people in the 1600s to start writing about what different ciders there were, what apple varietals there were. And he was one of the first people to actually notice that you could drink, even on different sides of a valley, you could drink cider from the same varieties and they would taste different. And it's one of the things that I don't think that we've done very well as, a, as an industry in the United Kingdom is, is what wine has done. When you look at French wine and the terroir of French wine mm-hmm. and the regions and, and you know, the Chardonnay grape, it's, 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 it's endemic through so many different parts of France. And yet, all those wines that have, have, have Chardonnay in are called by a different name. So we mm-hmm. say Chablis. Champagnes, they, they've all got Chardonnay in them. Yep. And it's a completely different style of wine depending on where it's grown. And I don't think we've actually paid enough attention, certainly in, in England. Do you uh, think it's possible to go that way? I, I'm a huge fan of it. I think but it is. I've seen a lot of resistance yeah, yeah. to that. Um, that's why we were so excited to work with these Irish producers yeah. because they were clearly saying, hey, let's see what Armagh does yeah, for cider. Yeah. yeah. What do you think, Eric? I mean, you're, you're in Virginia. Do you think there would be a, a distinctive Virginian style of cider? I think it'll evolve. I don't think it's quite there yet, but I think if you talk to people like Steve Wood, some of the long, you know, people have been doing this for a long time, you know, they don't necessarily think of it in terms of like a, a beer style necessarily. They do want to see things follow that sort of terroir, regionality, and um, just because people are having a- difficult getting access to the type of fruit they want, we're kind of getting this geographical mix that, you know, where a cider, even if it's made in a particular place, it may not necessarily reflect the terroir of that place. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Eric, and, you've yeah. traveled a lot. To, I don't mean to cut you off, but oh, no problem. you've traveled a lot. I know you're, you're in Pacific Northwest. What are some of the other regions that, that you've been to that you've been following? Well, I think, um, so the Pacific Northwest is huge. You know, there's, there's cider weeks out in Washington State and Oregon. Um, and actually in Napa and Sonoma, Northern California, there's actually a number of interesting cider makers there. Um, trying to c- combat that sort of, you know, the, the wine dominance there and actually sort of like trying to take back some of the, the acreage and actually trying to, to show some of those people that you can make some fantastic cider from Gravenstein and some of the, the apples that are grown in those regions. Um, Virginia is obviously a great region. Uh, the Rockies, um, Colorado, Montana, Idaho, they've got an association with probably 15 or 20 different members, so that's a very hot area right now. Um, the Great Lakes, you know, Michigan has always been a strong apple-growing region, and you know they have some of the strongest links there in terms of the early cider producers. So, um, and obviously Hudson Valley, New England. Um, I'm headed up to Franklin County Cider Days this weekend, and they just they have a ton of small sort of like farm winery, farm cidery type scale cider makers up there. So um, Asheville even. So Asheville is a big beer destination, but Asheville North Carolina actually has a big cider scene growing there too. So it's fantastic. Maybe two years ago there were say maybe 150 cider makers. Now there might be three or four hundred. You know just in a few years different. So there's a lot of emerging 
um, cider producers all over the country, and that's that's one thing that's fantastic compared to wine because you know anywhere that's got a temperate you know climate, you know apples can be grown. It may not be the you know the bittersweets or this you know different apple varieties are going to thrive in different places, but apples can you know they I think they have a wider geographic range here in the U.S. So it's you know there's really no stopping the the craft cider sort of um, renaissance, I guess. You know everyone talks about craft beer and how there's three thousand breweries. There's no saying that there couldn't be 3,000 craft cideries 10 or 20 years from now. It could, it could very much happen. So. Henry, um, mm. you were telling me yesterday about the origins of apples. Mm. So take us way back. Well, I, if you go way, way, way back, it's, it's interesting what Eric is saying about how different regions, certain apples will, will thrive and they will survive um, and, and, and really find a very, very happy home. The, you go back way in time. In every single apple on the planet can trace its lineage and its heritage and its genealogy back to uh, Kazakhstan. Um, and the capital of Kazakhstan, the old capital of Kazakhstan, is a place called Almata, which the literal translation in Old Kazakh is Mother Apple. And surrounding, uh, and Almata is in the foothills of the Tianxian Mountains. And all around the foothills, there are huge abundance and acreage of, of, of apple forests, not, not orchards. And they're not really trees and apples as we understand them. And that's where everything traces its lineage back. And the reason apples spread away from there was because the Silk Road ran through the Tianxian Mountains. So as traders came west, as they came east, they picked up these apples and, and, and they took them with them. And they either ate them and took them out of the window and the pips sprouted and started growing trees, or people actually started um, planting them. And the thing with apples is that they are, they're what's known as heterozygotic is the biological term which means that if you take the pip from a Macintosh or from a Gravenstein or from a Harrison or from a Cox's Orange Pippin, if you plant, and you, every, every apple, if you chop it laterally, has got a perfect pentagram seed pod, so five seeds, and you plant, plant those five seeds from, say, a Macintosh, you will not get a Macintosh grow from any of those. That would be something completely different. And... So if you take an apple tree in itself, there's probably the possibility of 7,000 new varieties on every single tree. And because they never repeat themselves, if you drop those apples into a region, one to a dozen of them are going to say, oh, I like it here. This is good. The rest will die. They won't thrive. Um, but they will, well, they will propagate and they will thrive if they, are, um, if, if they like the area. And, and so the question always is, is actually how do you end up growing the tree that you want or the variety that you want, which is you graft, you, you grow the rootstock, pippin rootstock, and then you take budwood off the variety that you want to reproduce and you graft that onto the budwood and then you will have the tree of your choice. Mm-hmm. And it was the, I mean, it's, no one knows exactly who it was that worked this out. It was either the Chinese or the Babylonians, but it was about four or 5,000 years ago. Uh, and we know certainly in Europe where our apples came from and then thence to the New World, to America, North America and South America, was that these were trees that were propagated by the Hittites, the sort of southern Turkey, northern Syria, uh, that sort of region, and who were conquered by the Romans a couple of thousand years ago. And they found this amazing pomology uh, technology and they took that back into Europe. And from there, we received apples from the Romans, and, and they progressed on from there. So it's a fascinating story, the apple. It's a ubiquitous, uh, very, very high survival possibility and potential for, for an apple. But they will grow pretty much anywhere, and, and, and they will thrive depending on 
Tower of Apple they are, which is similar to Eric's point. You go north, south, east, west, and you're going to find lots of wonderful different varieties that um, do very, very different things depending on the environment they're actually in. I think we should all go to Kazakhstan. That's, that's, <laughs> I've been advocating for a long I'm time. Desperate. A trip. Do you know, Timmy, we should do this show from Kazakhstan? Yeah. Come on, next year. Yeah, let's do yeah. fun. Yeah, all right. This, this, is, this is one of your, my favorite aspel. This is what? The this English is the dry. This is English our dry, dry side. Yeah. yeah, and it's, um, I mean, get the, the strong history of, of the apple. We're very, very blessed in, in England. We have a very temperate climate. Uh, apples grow extremely well. They produce because of the climate you know we don't get super hot summers uh, we get a decent amount of rainfall so we get reasonable sugar levels in our apples but we also get a nice acidity in them uh, the, the, the types of apple you know, I mentioned earlier on that you can get any number any volume of, uh, of, of styles of, of apple that will grow from a, from a if you like mother tree um, but they basically fall into three types there's apples that you eat there's apples that you cook with uh, and then there's these bittersweet cider apples. And the quality of the fruit in the United Kingdom is extremely good and has been for at least since Victorian times. They were the real big pomologists uh, uh, for us. And what we do with our cider is we really like that raw material to sing. You know, I want the nice sweet aromatic from a cox to come through. I want that clean acidity from a brownie to come through. I want that nice delicate tannic astringency to come through from a Dabonet or a Tremors Bitter or what have you. So this cider is really about bringing the quality of the inherent quality of the fruit to the forefront. So we ferment with the champagne yeast, which always sounds terribly exotic, but it's quite a dull yeast. It does no more than turn sugar to alcohol, and then fantastically it flocculates, it drops out, so you, uh, you don't have to filter very heavily to, 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 to lose the yeast. It's why they use it in champagne, Metachampenoise, is because it flocculates and forms a great plug in the neck of the bottle when you want to disgorge it. Um, and we ferment them separately. We ferment all the bases separately. You know, I, I, I feel like that um, I'm doing a disservice. We should be doing a three-hour uh, <laughs> Henry Chevalier Guild lesson about how to grow apples. So as, as people, a, people could listen to it when they want to get Oh, apples. I love it. And as, as an apple grower, though, and I know Eric probably wants to do that three-hour one with you, but as an apple grower, mm. do you feel like you're a gentleman farmer akin to certain small wineries or, or is this actually is this a, a money maker for you too uh, I think it's a money maker for everybody and you can't do this sort of thing whether you're a tiny small producer or you're a great big mass producer you have to be able to make money out of it so I was slightly winced when people said oh well it's a big commercial brand whoever it is it's like well we're all commercial we all have to turn a profit on it I think the difference always is between an artisanal producer and a, and a large producer is that if you're an artisanal producer, and I include ourselves in this, is actually your number one driver is what ends up in the glass. That's actually what gets you up in the morning. If you can then make money out of that, well, you know, you're basically living your hobby, uh, which is kind of what I feel I do. Blessed am I. You're lucky. Well, Eric, in your, in your travels, I mean... Have you tried crappy ciders? I mean, are there people that are trying to make it, but they don't have the right fruit or the right skills? Well, it's like an emerging kind of craft. 
Well, to try and spin that in a positive way, I think one of the exciting things about what Henry is doing and some of the ciders that, that Anthony is bringing over is that you know there are places in the world that have never lost their cider making tradition. It may have had you know peaks and valleys, but you know the tradition has never been completely lost. And so, um, one of the exciting things I think is that we, uh, especially in the New York City market, but in most places in the U.S., we can have access to very quality ciders. You know, from the West Country, from the East Counties, you know, from Normandy, from Brittany, from Asturias, you know, and those ciders, uh, you know, those markets are mature. Those are really good ciders. If they're making their way over to the U.S., you know, they're really good, good to drink. And I think a lot of the U.S. cider makers are still trying to find their way. They're not necessarily making poor quality ciders, but they haven't kind of found their their authenticity. They haven't found themselves, I guess, as cider makers. And so, um, you know, there are trends in terms of putting hops and other fruits and other things in the cider. And I think that's just because that resonates with the public, where the public is right now in the U.S. in terms of their understanding of cider. But I think over time, the U.S. customer is going to see these ciders from other places in Europe and Australia and New Zealand, and they're going to demand higher quality ciders. So I think the challenge for U.S. cider makers is to um, kind of go up that growth curve and learn very quickly, or else they might lose their they might lose their fan base, I guess, to some of these ciders that just you know can compete with the U.S. ciders on both quality and price. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I, I think yeah. it's it's no one ever intends to make a poor quality cider in the United States. Right. Um, but I mean, listen to your pedigree right there. I mean, how many years? You'd been? hope we'd have got it nearly right. Yeah. yeah, and I mean, it's same thing. One the reason why I love working with the Spanish cider is I mean, they're the longest continuous tradition. I mean, they claim to to be have been making it for two thousand years in Asturias, continually. And yeah. so, I mean, you know, they'll play with those numbers. So they're, back, they're backwards, <laughs> is that what you're saying? Yeah, yes. they've, been, they've been working on it for a long time, and I think they, people don't always like the Spanish style, but I don't think it's debatable whether or not it's made well anymore. Um, so, I'm certainly, people dislike that style. It's a little earthier and acidic for a lot of people. Then a lot of people don't like the mainstream stuff. That's true. Yeah. So, it's really, you, you, the great joy about cider and the breadth of it, to Eric's point, is that there's such an array. It's such a dynamic marketplace. You can yeah. pretty much find whatever you want. Well, what, what, one, one person to look at, Greg Hall at Virtue, he, he, he's a new company, jumped in. Some of us know who he is. Mm-hmm. But... One thing he did was he quickly surveyed the landscape. He knew there was an English style, a French style, and a Spanish style. And, uh, you know, I, I think this is a good good point of departure that we have a lot of traditional cider regions to talk about. Let's come back in a few minutes. We'll talk more about cider on Beer Sessions Radio. All right.
Hey, 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 welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. It's a special Cider Week show. We're talking with uh, Anthony from Rowan Imports, brought in some Irish craft ciders, Eric West from Cider Guide, Alex Forbes, Artisanal Imports, and uh, our good buddy, Henry Chevalier Guild, Aspel from uh, England. Does Aspel mean apple in England? Yeah, do you know, actually, what it means is it's an ancient Saxon uh, abbreviation for Aspen Hall. Uh, and basically, Hull in ancient um, English is a bend in a river, uh, and an aspen is an aspen tree. So, Aspel was the bend in the river where the aspen grew. You know, it, it's so great, Henry, that you've brought such a great perspective. We got to talk yesterday and talk about you know the, the culture of cider in England. So, you said that going back to even into the 1700s, finer ciders were the drink of the elite. They were in England. Yeah, yeah. They were. There was a couple of things that happened. Um, John Beale, I mentioned earlier on, was sponsored by a guy called Lord Scudamore, after whom an apple is named, and they're named, um, to actually catalogue apples and to catalogue styles of cider. And the way they used to make the cider back in the day, and this is kind of a little bit why cider has a bit of a split personality in terms of being seen as quite a cheap drink, but as at the same time being a very, very expensive drink, is you'd press your fruit and get single strains runoff um, cider or juice, sorry, which you would ferment into cider. And then if you were English in the 1600s, you'd bottle ferment it and make a metal champagne And then what you do is the pomace that was left over after the juice had come out of it, you would mix that with water and leave it for about 24 hours and repress it and flush the rest of the sugars out. Now, that meant you were a much, much lower sugar content liquid, uh, and you'd ferment that out, and it would come out to about three, maybe two and a half, three percent alcohol, and that's what they sold in the alehouses. And so the vast majority. So that was like of this, for the masses. Yeah, that was, and also, you know, it's back in the day when water wasn't very safe. Yeah. So drinking cider or drinking small beer was was seen as a was a. So you had the you had the cheaper cider for the masses, exactly. like a pint thing, exactly. and then someone asked me that last week, what's the difference between a pint cider and, and a yeah. you know a wine glass cider? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's it's a bit simplistic to say that that is the difference that one's got. 70% water in it and one's got virtually no water in it at all you know there is quite a lot of middle ground between between the two uh, but that was really where the difference was and the, and where ciders struggled certainly in the UK less so in the US because I think the dynamic of the market was a little bit different was that you had uh, a, a lot of the cider makers were best in, based in the West Country and they didn't have any direct contact or association with their customers and their consumers they sold to the middlemen would then take the cider to Bristol, it could be exported from there, would be taken to London. And it's the middlemen, by what we understand from history, is they were the guys that went, well, look, you know, I've got two barrels here, one's super expensive and one's really, really cheap. If I put a bit of a really cheap one into the super expensive one, no one's going to notice the difference. Mm-hmm. And so they just gradually overproduce. And the truth is, is whenever people get into that whole mentality of, oh, just, you know, it's like the salami cut. No one will notice, no one notices, no one will notice. And you know what, for two or three years, they probably don't notice. But there comes a moment in time, and this is a point I always make, is that people are not as stupid. Consumers are not as daft as a marketeer will, will make out. You can't kid, you know, eight million years of evolution with your taste buds. If you try and do that, you'll eventually lose people. They'll just switch off. Um, and that's kind of what did it for... Uh, I mean, there were some other extenuating circumstances as far as English cider was concerned, but that's what did it for the English, was that 
you know, when the taxes came in, when beer arrived uh, and they had hops and they were making a much better quality thing, it became a very difficult position. But you're still talking so, like late 1700s. Yeah. There was a tax that came in in 1763. The Prime Minister, Lord Bute, Scotsman, uh, though I mentioned that, but he was a Scotsman. Uh, he you guys are still thinking about <laughs> he's still thinking about the glory days of 1763 uh, but then Anthony the, what about the Irish one so we've got yeah, yeah. what's this last one you poured for us this uh, is a, a crazy flyer. crazy Irish cider yeah these guys and they are crazy um, <laughs> they're fermenting out of a milk container right now a milk tankard that's that's all they have I mean these people are really what does this taste like to you Eric because this is I've never tasted any hard cider like this before well, it's got a very nice aroma. It's it's, it's pretty dry, I think. It's very dry, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. And the aroma, you don't think it's going to be as dry as it is on yeah, the Yeah, it is a bit of a shock. Craigies. But it's lovely. I mean, that aroma is beautiful. They, yeah. uh, the Irish, for the most part, all of them do put, uh, they back sweeten with about 5% fresh juice. Mm-hmm. So that's where you're going to get that sweeter on the nose. You get that, that first bit of like... Do they bottle this um, still? Is it a bottle fermentation? Bottle no, fermentation? it's not. It's, okay. it's forced carbonated. Yeah. Uh, the other one, though, was Method Chapinon. Oh, was it? But it's, it's, it's all wild yeast fermentation as well. Oh, yeah. So that's why you're getting quite a bit. I mean, again, milk container. So, right. so this is like, it's, it's an old it's an old cider growing region, but it, from... I mean, Ireland, you're just going to see... Starting to make their own ciders again. The place. Yeah, so they were, they were again, like, they're, all of them were farmers who were growing apples and selling them to Balmers, uh, and now they're trying to pull back their production themselves. Mm. So really very small productions. I think we got the entire uh, 2013 this year <laughs> in one shipment. Is, is Ireland a big cider drinking country? Huge. Massive. Huge cider drinking country. It's the second yeah. biggest cider market in the world. What, England's the first. Yeah. Uh, you don't know that? Capita consumption? In, in, in Ireland or in yeah. the UK? Uh, I should do. I could make it up. But yeah. I, <laughs> I don't well, know. Asturias is 54 and a half liters per capita. That's, and they, they say that. But is that in Spain? That's just Asturias. Just in Asturias. That's water to them, isn't it? It, it? Yeah, it really is. I mean, you just see men on the street just doing that high pour. They'll just be sitting there with a cigarette in their mouth, yeah. just pouring it at 8 a.m. before they go off to work. Yeah. You know, it's, it's just the morning drink. You see, things haven't improved over the years, really, in the rest of the world, have they? No. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Eric, what, what about markets? I mean, do, do you study these things, or are you looking at... Well, I guess just like Anthony, I discovered about the craft cider movement in Ireland just via Twitter and their website, and yeah. um, it seems to be on a you know a smaller number of producers in the U.S., but growing just as fast as the cider movement is in the U.S. there. Um, you know, they're getting, you know feature articles in newspapers, and it's, it's, it's becoming a big deal there. So looking at it from afar, it seems like they are um, growing almost as fast as we are here in the U.S. Well, so in, um, in, in Ireland, in the, Ireland, the craft cider yeah, movement yeah. there. The, the yeah. problem in Ireland is, Ireland is, what is it, 8 million people in all of Ireland? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, the entire country is only about 8 million people, so yeah. the country of Ireland and New York City is about the same population. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> they're, they're growing, and they definitely can produce a lot of apples and produce a lot of cider. The problem is, is they can't drink all of it. Yeah, right. So, I mean, well, they could. The other place um, is Australia. Australia yeah. and New Zealand's got a massive growth in craft cider yeah. at the moment. It brands just, I mean, I went there a couple of months ago and I, well, I think we, we tasted 35 different ciders wow. that were available on the Dan Murphy supermarket shelf, and that's nowhere near all wow. of them there. Yeah. So, how do you have a That's part of your job. You're traveling a lot, you're going to I festivals. Just have to, I just drink a lot of cider. <laughs> that's all about it. I know I do. I look after the export for our business, so I go out and do the brand ambassadorial. So, I come to America a lot and Australia. 
uh, they're big markets for us. Um, but actually, the, the, you know, the really interesting thing is to, it's, it's, it's the take back. Because whilst we've got 286 years of heritage and history, things are always, always, always moving on. Always, I never, ever come to America and don't go back home inspired and energised by what people are doing here. Um, so I, I love it. I mean, I come for that reason almost as much as I do to sell my own brand. It's, um, it's a really, really exciting time for cider globally, uh, and no, no, no more so than, than in New York and the rest of America. Let's do some questions. Eric, I'm sure you have a question for Henry. Well, Henry, I was going to ask, um, is Aspel, is it resonating with the U.S. market? Is it something that you think the U.S. consumers are excited about? I think so. We, you know, we're, the, we're the oldest cidery uh, in the world, as far as um, we're aware. And it's, the cider is a, it's a very... We've been out here for 10 years, so we've got a little bit of credibility in terms of we, we haven't just started coming over now that cider's um, uh, become exciting. Uh, I think there's, you know, there's, there's an affinity, certainly, with the heritage side of it. But the key thing, as I mentioned earlier on, actually the exciting bit is you, know, you can't rest on your laurels and your heritage. Mm-hmm. It's not about, actually, the fact that we're the oldest cider. Right. Do people like to drink it? And certainly, I mean, the, 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 the tastings we've been doing so far this week is this, it's well, the one thing we have. And, you know, Anthony mentioned about, you know, people love Spanish ciders. Uh, people love Normandy ciders. We have a... a, a it feels like we have quite a broad base in terms of uh, the style of cider that we make. So whilst there are some complexities to it and it's quite a serious you know, adult drink, uh, it has an approachability to it as well. There's no exclusivity about that. And um, yeah. you, know, you could look at our eight generations of cider making and saying, well, it's only for a very select few, but it's, it's, we've never worked on that basis. Or I certainly haven't. It's, uh, it's, if people like it, then I would encourage them to drink it. Yeah, well, I think that the... Um tannin is kind of a roadblock for some people here it's like they don't quite understand that and so I think your ciders because they're toned down a little bit yeah. maybe compared to a West Country cider that that'll exactly. be a little we, bit more you know, we use, to yeah, the... we use bittersweet to give structure rather than to be the defining character of it Henry, who, who are some I heard about Somerset in England mm. the west, yeah. west counties of England yeah. who are those, those producers of cider down there, I mean, Tom Oliver's been mentioned so far. He's a he's a fantastic producer. I mean, he is. If you wanted to define heart and soul of English cider making, Tom Oliver could probably carry that mantle on his shoulders just on his own. Uh, some of the others, Mike Henney's making great cider. Alan Hogan, you see both of their ciders over here around about. I've seen a bit of Sanford over here uh, as well. They're a Devon cider maker, quite new, quite young. Um, so those those cider makers are picking up very much on, on what Anthony was saying earlier on is that there's a, there's a lot of orchards about the UK that are you know they've not fallen into disrepair but they've you know, lost a bit of love. There's um, people don't look after them so much and and uh, companies like Henny's and, and Hogan's and Sanford have actually gone in and actually brought them back to life and started making some some really really superb ciders. That's great. I'm, I'm excited to, to taste more ciders from all over the world. I mean, so, learning that there's so many great cider regions, Normandy in France, mm-hmm. now Ireland, Astorias in Spain, and parts mm-hmm. of England, I feel like I've, I've only tasted a few producers from each. Germany, Germany too. That's what we were trying. You've got some Germans. Yeah, you've got some Germans. And Germany's got a massive, you can go to the Hessen, Frankfurt yeah. region, 
you don't go into a bar and not get offered a cider. You read the intro to the German one in the World's Ciders. I so this guy did great. No? Yeah, what book is this? Or Eric, you've, yeah. you've seen this book, right? It's sure. Yeah. Pete. So this is World's Best Ciders. So it came out uh, last fall, about a year ago, and it's from Pete Brown, the, uh, the London-based beer writer, and uh, Bill Bradshaw. He's based in Somerset. He's a photographer, and he does a lot of photography on orchards and cider. And uh, really, um, if you have to make a comparison to the beer world, you know, this is not quite Michael Jackson's World Guide to Beer, but this yeah. is pretty close to it. It's really the first sort of worldwide look, I guess, at cider cultures from all over all over the globe. So this is a pretty kind of a landmark book, I guess. And sort of, right. I, actually, I sent an email to Pete this morning about something different. And I just said, you'd have to come over because your American chapter is so far out of date. Yeah, Even well, after a year, yeah, yeah, yeah. you need to come back and... Yeah. Well, this is fun. This has been my tool for Cider Week because I have everyone in the room signed it and Aspal's in here and, and your buddy Slodboro and, yeah. and, you know, Farm Hill. So that's a pretty good book. And Rowan Jacobson's got his Apple book out too. So yeah, that's great. There's a couple of cider books to get if you're looking for holiday presents. So Anthony, you, you're the story. I mean, you and your brother John... I mean, out of nowhere, what you, at one point you considered opening a cider bar, and now you're importing cider from how many countries? Spain, France, Germany, the UK, the US. I'd like to talk to you about uh, Argentina afterwards. <laughs> um, yeah, we. Uh, I, mean, I guess it's, it's really a simple issue. We like traveling and we like drinking. Um, and my brother initially thought about opening up a cider bar and could not find distributors of it. And then we looked into it more and couldn't find importers of it. Uh, and he was hanging out in Asturias. Uh, our mother used to live in Asturias many years ago, and so we were just traveling around there. I was living in Hanoi, and he kind of called me and said, come on over. And we drank a bunch of Spanish cider and had a really good time on it and just called the TTB, which is a federal agency of the government, and said, how do you, how do you import cider? How do you become an importer? And figured it out. I mean, we started out of our apartment in Chinatown, and now we import 70 ciders, uh, up from seven, you know, and in how long? Uh, but first product came in about two years ago. Wow! Yeah, you guys have really impacted Cider Week, and I mean, if you go to any good restaurant or bar that has a, a good list of ciders, and most, if not all of them, are from you guys. I mean, you're the only dedicated cider importer distributor in New York City. The only dedicated in the United States. Um, that's yeah, that's all, all we do because I, you know, you just want to put some dedication into it and really learn. I mean, listening to just you talk, that is amazing. I, I did not know nearly much about the history of it, and I would love to learn more. I've about had it. a long time to go on with this. <laughs> yeah. Don't be that impressed. Yeah, you know? it's it's something uh, that your children will. It will take them that. It's a generational thing. It'll it take is, them that yeah, long. Really your yeah. children will grow up learning about cider. Well, I'm really interested to hear. There was a um, a book that just came out, an encyclopedia of apple varietals. It was written by a man in uh, Michigan, was it, or Indiana? I think it's Wisconsin. Oh, it's Wisconsin? actually coming out in a few months, I think. Yeah. But yeah, he, uh, he's been on this sort of quixotic mission to catalog every single every single U.S. apple variety. Yeah. Good for him. He's got 17,000 varieties. 17,000 documents. Eric, on that, you're yeah. going up to Saturdays. Tomorrow? Yeah. In Massachusetts? Yeah. So and who are some of the cider experts or, or apple experts that you're telling me about? Sure. So at Franklin County Cider Days, it draws people from all over New England, all over the, the country, really. It's kind of a place where cider people can join their tribe and kind of get together and hang out with one another. Um, ben Watson is one of the guys who puts that get-together. Um, he's the author of Cider Hard and Sweet. It's in its third edition now, so that's one of the kind of touchstone cider books here in the U.S. Um, Tom Oliver is actually going to be there this year as a special guest. Um, Steve Wood from Farnham 
Hillsider, uh, John Bunker, who's an Apple expert, especially on historical Apple varieties. He's based in Maine. He'll be there. Um, basically kind of a who's who of cider in New England and beyond is, will, will be there. There's um, all the orchards there just kind of have an open house, and it's a family-friendly thing where you can go and tour the orchards and drink, you know, juice right off the press and, you know, have mulled cider, and you can buy apple butter and, you know, apple vinegar. And it's just a, it's just a celebration of all things Apple. It's not necessarily a hard cider festival. It's not, you know, something where you just go and drink and get trashed. You know, it's, it's a family-friendly thing, and it's, you know, people are there to discuss apples and, you know, culture as much as they are the, the hard cider. So it's something that I've gone up for a couple of times. This is my third time, and it's something I always look forward to in the fall. So. Well, that's it's great. great. It's yeah. great. That, that the apple tree is that, you know, everywhere, everybody understands apple. And I love that Martin Luther King quote, which is, you know, even, even if tomorrow the world, I knew the world was going to go to rack and ruin, I would still plant my apple tree. There's a, that, this is Martin Luther King, the, the, the side of me. Martin Luther. <laughs> <laughs> no, Martin Luther King, the junior, our right. civil rights yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, okay. Yeah. But there was Martin Luther, the yeah, well, that's, crazy yeah. German. Crazy German. Yeah. <laughs> Many years ago. There's a lot of, we've covered some of, I, I, what I've learned is that Kazakhstan is Mother Apple. Yeah. Uh, the heyday of English cider was 70, 1763. The heyday of Astoria Spain cider was like AD 45. Yeah. <laughs> and that the Romans uh, rewarded their legionnaires with, with apple trees. So it's been great. And again, Eric West is here. It's ciderguide.com. I think if you really want to know what's going on in the world of cider, festivals, and, 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 and great podcast interviews, Go to ciderguide.com. Yeah, I'm on, I'm on Twitter at ciderguide. Cider guide. It's yeah. so great having you on, Anthony. So, so you're doing it tonight. This is the debut of Irish Craft Ciders in America. This is the first time here at Jimmy's number 43. Is there one last one that we didn't there try? There is yet? one last one. Yeah. Come on, tell us all about it. Uh, now we're going to try the Dan Keeleys, uh, and this is from Drogheda. Uh So in North. This is the great thing about cider is there's always one last one. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't realize that there was such a great such a great uh, history of you know cider apples in Ireland. You know, I guess it's I interesting. I was really refused to drink Magnus for that, so many that years. That whole so. thing about um, people used to make their their cider in their homestead. Yeah, and then actually they sold the apples through to the to the producer. Exactly the same thing happened in the UK. Really, exactly. The same. It's the like whole, that. The a lot of things are like that, and yeah. it's good to know that there's a new market that these guys can actually produce and, and sell their own their own wares, and that's kind of what the whole farm yeah. country scene things. And we love that. And again, I'd like to thank our sponsors at GreatBrewers.com for helping bring to you this special Cider Week podcast tonight. Thanks to Henry, Alex, Anthony, and Eric for joining me here on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jimmy Carboni. I'm a little cider drunk. It's the end of Cider Week. <laughs> Thanks to our producers, Maggie Side and Justin Kennedy, and our engineer, Jack Inslee. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.